1: Hello, and welcome to Smart People Podcast. These are conversations that satisfy your curious mind, and I am your host, Chris Stemp. Thanks for joining us for another episode. So truly humbled to have our guest this week on the show. We are speaking with General Ann Dunwoody. And you want to know about Ann? She is America's first female four-star general. Now, for those of you that kind of understand what that means, it's kind of massive, specifically the four-star general part. But more than that, listen to what she did. When she retired, she was leading a $60 billion enterprise of over 69,000 employees, which consisted of the Army's global supply chain in support of Iraq and Afghanistan. So as you'll hear in the episode, she was in charge of getting everyone in the Army What they needed guns, vests, trucks, tanks, food, blah, 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 right? But it was a very long, distinguished career that led to that and a number of different channels. But on June 23rd, 2008, President George W. Bush nominated General Ann Dunwoody as a four star general in the U.S. Army, the first time a woman had ever achieved that rank. So in this episode, we're going to learn about Ann, right? So, first of all, what got her there and what I love, what I love, what I love, you're going to hear how. She didn't plan on going into the army, although there were some seeds planted due to probably family ties, which you'll hear about. She was going to be a phys ed teacher. So if you don't know exactly what you want to do, even all the way up through college, still you can achieve the greatest heights. And I think she gives some really good insight on how to do that. Also, how do you lead people? Because look, you might be leading a small team, a large team, an organization, but are you leading 70,000 people around the globe, getting them all the material they need in life and death situations? Probably not. So I think you can learn something here. General Dunwoody's book is called A Higher Standard, Leadership Strategies from America's First Female Four-Star General. And we touch on some of those leadership strategies, but trust me, the book goes into much more detail, especially because I want to cover all types of things, leadership, but fear and emotion and all the good stuff that we get into. Excited to bring you this episode. Thank you specifically to General Ann Dunwoody for her service, but really also to all of the men and women out there in our armed forces. Your sacrifice does not go unnoticed, and we greatly appreciate it. Before I turn it over to General Dunwoody, a reminder, if you haven't signed up for the upcoming webinar, why not? Go do it. Go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Patrick. Hosting the webinar is former guest Patrick McGinnis. If you remember, Patrick is a venture capitalist, serial entrepreneur, and author and global keynote speaker. He's the managing partner and founder of Derigo Advisors which provides strategic advice to investors and business operations globally. What will we be covering? Pretty much we'll be covering how to become an entrepreneur, but how to do it the right way. Okay, it's called the 10% Entrepreneur. Live your startup dream without quitting your day job. Head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Patrick to reserve your spot for the webinar happening on Friday, June 3rd at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, make sure you sign up for our newsletter where we send all this out with invites so you don't have to keep track of it in your head while you're running or walking your dog or driving in your car. You can just get the webinar invite. Boom, sign up, save your spot because spots are limited to maintain kind of the ability to ask questions and really engage. All right. Thanks so much again for listening. We are at smartpeoplepod on Twitter and smartpeoplepodcast.com. Here it is, our episode with General Ann Dunwoody and her brand new book, A Higher Standard Leadership Strategies from America's First Female Four-Star General. Enjoy. We have with us General Ann Dunwoody. So, Ann, first, I want to say thank you so much for being a guest on the show.
3: Uh, it's great to be here i'm really looking forward to it thank you yeah and i'm i'm
1: extremely excited to have you on as i i've talked about in the intro prior to this recording you know america's first female four-star general and the thing is you can take a four-star general and i could talk to him for hours and they have a lot to teach us but to be not only a female four-star general but the first that's just kind of mind-blowing do you ever just reflect on that and go i can't believe i did that
3: Yeah, it's, you know, as many times as I think about it and play that video back in my brain of that day, it's still just so humbling uh, to think about. And quite frankly, I wasn't prepared for the enormity of the event, even with all the first I had in my life, the cards and letters from kids and veterans and men and women and moms and dads and people all over the world. I was just, just overwhelmed.
1: Well, and you know, what's fascinating when I kind of think about what is so unique about the first female four-star general. I mean, look, you're a human being, and human beings have been four-star generals before. So that is, I mean, it's tough to earn. its ex- I mean, it's extremely difficult, and I'm going to get into what that is. But it's more, th- I'd imagine, the challenges you faced just because of your gender.
3: You know, one of the reasons I chose to write the book is because people assume that I had to fight and claw my weight to the top Mm-hmm. and my journey really was more about leadership than gender. Mm. And so that's why I felt like I had to write the book so people knew that it really was. And it doesn't mean I didn't have obstacles and roadblocks, but I had a lot of people along the way who wanted to help, and I loved my journey.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you think that that's just your mindset? Do you think somebody else would have seen it and gone, wow, you had to go through different, I don't know, glass ceilings or whatever, or is that truly you feel like, you know, your leadership obviously stood out above the rest and you earned it. And that was that.
3: Uh I, I think there is there's a combination there. And I was, a, a tr- quite frankly, and I don't know if we we'll get this later. I never even dreamed of coming into the military, um, even though I had four generations of West Pointers in my family, my big brother, my dad, his dad, and my great-grandfather were all West Pointers. But it never occurred to me about even thinking about coming to the military. I was going to be a coach. And a phys ed major from as far back as I can remember. I was a tomboy, loved sports, went to college at Cortland State in upstate New York because it was one of the best phys ed schools in the country, and that's what I always dreamed I was going to do. Um, then, right after the end of the Vietnam War, in my junior year in college, uh, the Army was trying to recruit more women in the ranks, and they had this program that if you were accepted and qualified. They paid you five hundred dollars a month during your senior year in college. You had a <laughs> two-year commitment, and you got a commissioned as a second lieutenant. Five hundred dollars was a lot of money back then, and so I, you know, I came in for the money, but I stayed because I loved what I was doing. But I think I realized that I really did end up. Fulfilling my childhood dream was just in a different profession, a different classroom, you know, coaching thousands of men and women in uniform on and off the battlefield in a very physically demanding profession. Wow. You know,
1: there's a takeaway there that I want to focus in on. And it's this idea that you really didn't know. Like, you have reached the pinnacle of uh, possibilities within the Army and done it as a first, you know, the first female. And you didn't, that wasn't a goal since you were five or six. And I think so many people go like, oh, if I don't know what I want to do early on, or if it didn't show up, you know, super early and I had these amazing talents, then I must not be destined for greatness. What would you say to kind of somebody who, you know, they know they have skills inside of them, but they feel like they don't know where to take it
3: I think you're exactly right I, you know not everyone figures it out at the same on the same timeline and sometimes we don't know we might think we know and sometimes we're doing something that our mom and dad did and following their footsteps but it not, might, might not be what our real passion is and I think I told you, if I hadn't tried the army you know for two years even though I was sure it was just going to be a short detour and route to my coaching profession that I would have never known. So, you know, I encourage people to you know don 't close the doors, walk through the doors, and try you, you just don't know and you 're going to when you find it, and you know because I can tell them what you love what you 're doing and you knew what you didn 't like to do mm-hmm. that you know it 's not work anymore it 's fun it 's rewarding, and you think you can make a difference and and that 's really why I stayed in the army. I told my dad after two years was up, I said, "Dad, I really like being a soldier, and I love leading soldiers." And I'm going to stay and do it as long as I love what I'm doing and I can make a difference. And that's what I did, one job at a time. That's really
1: fascinating. Let's let's go back to then that beginning part. Um, tell us how you you know you kind of gave us that look. You started in college to make that 500 bucks, and then from there, what's it look like? Because eventually, I want to to be completely honest. So, my dad um, spent I don't even know 20 something years retired from the Air Force. Uh, but I, you know, I don't know a ton about rank. I don't know how this all works. And I think there's a lot of people out there that don't. So I want to kind of get up to that and learn where did it start and how did it progress?
3: Okay. Well, my, you know, the reason I ended up in the logistics business as a quartermaster officer is because when I joined for that two years, I just looked at all the officer Simon officers. I said, which one of you will send me to airborne school? And they hadn't started letting women officers go to airborne school yet. And, you know, being a a phys ed major and a jock, I I thought that'd be really cool get to jump out of airplanes. And the quartermaster branch said, we'll send you. So that's why I ended up in the logistics business, thinking I was only going to do two years, because they sent me to airborne school. And it was it was fun. It was exciting. It was also hard. And here you're walking through one of those doors where the, the black hats, who are the instructors, they're not too excited to see women coming down to mm-hmm. jump out of their airplanes. <laughs> this is a you know, macho business. And, um, and we went, you know, they yell and scream, but they yell and scream at everybody. Being a physical education major, I was physically fit and could do more push-ups and outrun most people anyway. So it was a a fun time, even though they tried to discourage women from completing. They wanted me to cut my hair. I had long hair, as I do now. And they told me bobby pins were hazardous to, you know, jumping. And so Mm -hmm. I used masking tape and taped it up and then got around that one. You know. yeah. So <laughs> graduated, and that going to that school allowed me to do so many other things in my military career. If I hadn't done that, again, another door opening, uh, I, I don't think I would have been where I am today, and I'll talk about those later. So then I get to go to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, as a second lieutenant, the lowest officer rank in the Corps, Butter Bar, we call them. And, and that's where uh, I had my very first platoon, and I had the very best platoon sergeant in the army. And he taught and trained me, Lieutenant Dunwoody, what Wright looked like. He taught me how to be a lieutenant. He was a Vietnam veteran. And back then it's kind of a broken hollow army, actually, but there's nothing broken or hollow about him. And he said, Dunwoody, I'm gonna make you the best lieutenant in the United States Army. And I said, He didn't say female lieutenant, just the best lieutenant. A couple of weeks later, he said, "Dunwood, you're really going to make me work at this, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. But he he taught me the the high standards, how to inspect, how to correct, how to counsel, how to write evaluations, how to hold people accountable. And those lessons stayed with me uh, through my whole career uh, and I think contributed to my success. And then I got to, was able to command a company uh, in that same installation as a first lieutenant, which is usually, it's unusual, it's usually a captain. So uh, a battalion commander. I never worked for a woman. I worked for men who either believed in me or didn't. And I believe, you know, we work for all kinds of leaders, good, bad, and ugly, uh, some in between. But I believe the other important leadership lesson that I learned along the way is that You don't lower your standards because of who you work for. You maintain your standards, your pair, your professional usually exceed the standards. And a lot of times you can make believers out of the non-believers. And and sometimes you're not, but don't don't, uh, resort to name calling or lower your standards to Indian and gossip, which which many people do. Because it's easy to do when you feel like you're treated unfairly. Mm. And uh, so I just say stay on the moral high ground, do your best and try to make believers out of the non-believers. Fortunately, I have a lot more believers than non-believers in my journey. It sounds like it. And so, I, I mean, it sounds like a key
1: part, right, is having the right people believe in you and train you. And it's actually tough because I get questions, emails from listeners and some of the coaching that I do, and people say, I understand I need some kind of mentor or leader, but how do I find them? And I have a few thoughts on that, but I wanted to get yours. You know, do you feel like you just lucked out with this first guy who said, I'm going to make you the best lieutenant in the Army? Or how did that come about?
3: Well, I think that it was, there's twofold. First, the company commander, who was a, a former infantry captain out of Vietnam, and then he came into logistics business after Vietnam as an ordnance. And he intentionally put me with the best non-commissioned officer in the company. Now, he didn't have to do that. This guy was so good, he really didn't need a butterball lieutenant platoon leader. But the company commander had the foresight to say, hey, I'm going to put you with the best. all he said was, listen, watch, listen, and learn from this guy, and you're going to be okay. And then I had this this best NCO who said, I'm going to teach you. And so it was fortuitous that I had a company commander That didn't see this new female lieutenant come in the company, go away. We're going to put her off in some nothing job, or with someone, you know, to show that they can't succeed. He he put me with the best, and the best taught me the best leadership lessons. Mm. And I don't think it was by accident. I think it was intentional. And along my way uh, journey, I had a lot of great coaches and mentors, and many. And and you know, you're in this business. You don't even know sometimes. In my book, I call it the man behind the curtain. And they were men because I never worked for a woman. But they saw something in me and believed in me. And they would influence my career and my assignments. And sometimes without even my knowledge. I'm like, how did that happen? But if left to the system, I probably wouldn't have had these opportunities uh, these really good jobs, these really exciting assignments that were, you know, kind of game changers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, then I think along the way, you, first you're the being coached and mentored. And then by the time you're a, a field grade, let's just lieutenant colonel or major, you have to do the coaching and mentoring. You know, it's a, a change of roles that you coach and mentor and look out for the talent out there in the field. Uh, and not people that just look like you and act like you and came from the same background, for, but from all walks of life and, and and reach out and make sure that you're coaching and mentoring them like people did for you. It's one of those things.
1: One of, one of the things I say is, you know, if you can't if you truly can't find a mentor or you can't find somebody you look out, you look up to, you're in the wrong place. So if it's a company, you're in the wrong company. If it's a university, I mean, really, they're, they're everywhere. So what are you not doing to put yourself in the right position? It's not their job necessarily to find you, but if you get the right person and they see the potential, which comes through work and all that, then that kind of leads to mentors. And also, as you said, it can be the man behind the curtain. It doesn't have to be this typical idea of I'm going to be your leader or mentor. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah, I do. You know, and I, I've worked for people and then found out later that they were tracking me or my career. And when they see something that didn't sound right or look right, they weighed in even without my knowledge you know, and always for for the good, mm-hmm. you know. So you're right. You're, it's not always visible uh, coaching and mentoring. But I think you're right. You know, people people want the best athlete on their team. They mm-hmm. want the best and brightest You know, I I tell people that people that just meet the standards, come to work every day. and, And then there's leaders that exceed the standards. And I always tried to exceed the standards. And I thought as a woman that I would have to do that because to be accepted into this, you know, male dominated ranks. But what I realized is that all the good leaders that I worked for, all the ones I looked up to, they held themselves to a higher standard also and encouraged their subordinates. Because those that just meet the standards, I I compare them, that's like a C student, and the ones that exceed the standards, they're the A students. From your
1: experience, how do you recommend somebody, and this might sound dumb, exceed the standards? How do you, you know, because I think oftentimes we're raised to, especially through the educational system, know what the teacher wants and then deliver it. And then you get an A and you move on. And there's oftentimes not a benefit to going far above and beyond. So for someone like yourself when you're put into a stressful environment which I would imagine it was especially early on how do you go you know what I'm going to do more
3: Well I think this is uh, this is one of the things I talk about in the military First of all, less than 1% of the American population ever serves in the military. That's a pretty puny number. And so most Americans don't know that men and women who wear the uniform are held to a higher standard. You know, we take an oath to defend, support, defend the Constitution of the United States. That's that's pretty heady stuff for an 18-year-old or anyone else for that matter. And then we're subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and you may remember from your dad's time. It's like a code of conduct that governs your behavior seven days a week, 24 hours a day, in and out of uniform. And then of course we have standards for everything we do, how fast you run, how many pushups you can do, how you wear a uniform, how you wear your hair, how many times you can hit a target with various weapons. So in the military, we're standards-based organization and we also want to be a self-policing. But I think it, that that little uh, that applies to everything. You know, never walking by mistake, and, and exceeding the standard. So if the, if to pass the PT test, I only had to do 20 push-ups, but to max the PT test, I could do 40. I'm going to do 40. Mm-hmm. If to max the run, you only had to do so, – you know, I'm going to do my best to exceed because in the military – people that exceed the standards are the ones you want on your team. It's a dangerous profession. You know? yes. A students don't ruin the curve in the Army. Yeah. Uh, they enhance it. You know? Well, one of the things, and
1: and we're going to get into this eventually, You know, as you led tens of thousands of quote-unquote employees, I mean servicemen and women, how would you judge, or not necessarily judge, but pick out those that were exceeding the standards outside of, mandated things such as push-ups or running? Because in the in the corporate world where most of us reside, we don't necessarily have clear-cut things like, you know, if you come to work eight hours, you're average, and if you come nine, you're above average. Sometimes in sales, and I get that. But outside of that, are there things you look for that are maybe a little, little more hidden that we can work on?
3: Yeah, there, I think there, there's a lot. And first of all, I don't believe that those who just work long hours longer and harder are not necessarily make them better and smarter, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so oh, much, I do. You know, but, but one of the lessons I learned, and this again from my platoon sergeant as a new second lieutenant, was never walk by a mistake. Now, this sounds real easy, but it's it, it takes personal courage in every endeavor. And when you think about it, and for the military, it could be You know, passing a soldier who's in uniform, shuffling down the sidewalk with his hands in his pockets uh, to something more serious like not maintaining his weapon to standard. Well, not maintaining your weapon to standard in a training could lead to a malfunction, but in combat could lead to a fatality. And it's a slippery slope when you don't enforce the standards and you walk by, you you see things wrong, you don't do it. It becomes the new standard, the new lower standard in the eyes of the offender. Now, you think about corporate world, and and it happens, you know, think about the General Motors. If someone had, you know, identified the ignition switch problem, instead of trying to cover it up, how many lives would have been saved? How many millions of dollars that were spent on corporate reputation, damage control, and lawsuits Think about Volkswagen. If someone had highlighted the conspiracy instead of trying to cover it up, and I think the last number I saw was $10.5 billion spent in the US alone. Think about the Veterans Affairs. If someone at Arizona Veterans Affairs Hospital had highlighted the patient backlog problem instead of trying to cover it up with phony metrics, how many veterans we could have helped instead of delayed their care? So it's it's a simple principle, but not enforcing the standards I think is like a slippery slope that leads to poor performance, uh, bad behavior, and and ultimately in our business, people getting hurt.
1: And you know, those were some great examples. And I think, uh, I mean, specifically, you know, the VA that really I think that just that really bothered the entire nation. And and that's one that I just I I can feel viscerally. But I also (laughs) at the same time appreciate you know there are people out there that are just so overworked and underpaid and oftentimes let's take let's take it into your world say in the armed forces and i'm not talking about pay and all that because i frankly have no idea but um you have people in in really tough conditions how do you motivate them to not to, to never walk by a mistake to really excel to that excellence when it may be easier for them to just try to kind of hide from you or or stay out of harm's way?
3: Well, first of all, you know, walking by a mistake and and making the -the on-the-spot correction doesn't have to be an an ass chewing or, you know, a yelling and a screaming. Sure. It could be educational. Hey, soldier, you didn't know you're not supposed to walk with your hands in the pocket or you need to have your headgear on or, you know, if you don't clean your weapon to standard, you're going to, it's going to, you know, you might not be able to protect your buddy on the left and the right. And so by using these opportunities, coaching and mentoring, uh, that you can teach, see, making on-spot corrections becomes okay. And your leadership says, hey, that's okay. The boss is doing it. I should do it. And so you become a self-policing organization where it's okay to make these on-spot corrections because that leads to high-performing organizations. And And I think the people that don't is a slippery slope. The people that just do average work that you're going to kind of have an average organization. Uh If you have people that, that do self-police that are proud of their unit, that don't want uh, that reflection on their unit because they have a greater concern from the unit than themselves, that you're going to create a high performing organization. And, And that whether you're corporate, whether you're military is is, is really our goal to create a high performing, whether it's a platoon, a company, a brigade, or army material command. We want high performing organizations and you, so the, the other part of this question is how do you do that? is when you see people doing the right thing, and I, I like in every organization like a bell curve, whether it's army or, or school or university. <laughs> And at at one end of the curve, you got, you know, 20% of the people that are really A-plus, your go-to people that you know every time you ask them to do something, they're going to deliver, and they're going to deliver quality. And in the middle of the herd, you got, you know, probably 60% that want to do the right thing, and they come to work every day and do the right thing. And then at the other end of the curve, you got 20% that don't want to be there, hardly make it to work on time. They're kind of dragging the organization down. And if you, as the leader of that organization, don't reward that 20 percent that's busting their buns, trying to do the right thing and doing the best they can do every day, and you don't discipline, make on the spot corrections or do something to 20 percent that really don't care, don't show up and don't do it, then that 60 percent in the middle, they're going to look to the those good guys, they go, God, they're working their butts off and no one even pats them on the back, says thank you or rewards them. Mm-hmm. And these other guys that don't show up for work and gals and they don't do anything, nothing happens to them. Where do you think that herd's moving?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> they're moving. To the, why, why should they work hard? So uh, as leaders, it's important that we reward, recognize those that are doing the right thing and the best for the company. Because people, I do believe people want to make a difference. I do believe people want to come in. And do do the best they can do, but they also want to be appreciated for what they do
1: oh I think i don 't think there's any more powerful motivator in any environment than you know a, a positive whatever it might be a reward you know and it doesn 't have to be a thing, but even just uh, recognition it 's something I, you know in any leadership role i 'm in, I just go out of my way to try to. And make it real. You know, this isn't a, oh, I'll just tell you you're good because you need to hear it. But re- if you really appreciate people, just think about how much more they're going to give.
3: I know. You When you said that, I got goosebumps. Me too. Because <laughs> I believe that. And and it is, it is about sincerity, honesty, but it's also taking the time, because we get so busy, to, to give that pat on the back, that handshake, that coin, that t-shirt, whatever, that ward reward, sure. And, uh... And too often, we just get so busy that we expect people to do those things and don't take the time out to acknowledge and appreciate. And at the same time, take the time with the ones that, you know, is this really what you want to be with your life? You, a dud? <laughs> you know? yeah.
1: And you know what? I love hearing this from you because you, okay, and for those that haven't quite grasped the scale yet that I, I'm, I'm leading to and we're going to talk about, but upon retiring, you led about 70,000 troops. Is that correct? And and this was um, in the Army and throughout the... At what point was it? I think it was 2008, right, when you officially became the four-star general?
3: That's correct. Mm-hmm. And so,
1: I mean, think about that. This is global. This is life and death. This is tens of thousands. I mean, really, this is leadership on a whole nother level. And for you to be able to say, look, you have to stop being so busy and realize that these individuals that make up that organization that you know whatever it might be are what make it tick and you have to reward them and this isn't a this isn't a place where you know empathy and emotion has has typically been seen as a weakness <laughs> and I think from what you're telling me and, and again, please tell me if I'm wrong but you said that's not the case. We don't all have to be badasses out here and everybody, the only way you learn is through yelling. Is that, how, how do you feel about that?
3: No, that's absolutely correct. I was, uh, and I've worked for all kinds. I've worked for yellers and screamers, a guy through books at subordinates when he got mad. And, you know, I watched, he drove more good captains out of the army with that kind of temp- temp- temper tantrums than know. anyone I ever knew. And, and it, we ask so much of the men and women in uniform that it is our job as leaders to make sure that we acknowledge and appreciate the sacrifices, especially these days. Man, you know, 15 years at war and these deployments and these young kids and separations, not one Christmas, two Christmases, birthdays, you know, it's just so, so demanding and and so challenging that it's so important. And I, I spent the last I spent my whole time as this general officer at, at, after 9-11. So an army at war. I've been to Afghanistan and Iraq so many times and Kuwait. Uh, but to see our men and women doing the heavy lifting and, and making sure that even in the deployed arena that you're out there thanking them for what they're doing and make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to make their lives better.
1: So I want to really get into what it's like to lead that many people. But for those that don't understand, myself included, what is the difference between a just a general, oh, maybe there's one star, I mean, a two star, three star, why is four star the, the pinnacle? How do you move up through that? If you could kind of break down in a fairly quick period of time, how the responsibilities change and what the scale of rank is to the civilian.
3: I'll do my best. Uh, (laughs) I think uh, making Brigadier General, which is one star, is one of the toughest cuts in the Army because it's a pyramid like every other organization. There's fewer and fewer, so we have a lot of colonels, and and I believe uh, it it changes, but the population for colonels being eligible to promotion to one star just in the Army is about uh, 2,500 to 3,000, and only 40 are selected. Uh, so you can see, and that's once a year. And then um, to two stars, you, normally you hold a rank for three years. Is not a requirement, but usually three years, and then you're eligible. Uh, but you're actually, you're actually eligible earlier. But the, the normal uh, promotion time frame is about three years after you've had three years in grade as a one star. You're eligible now for two stars. And, of course, now it's a smaller population, but it's also a smaller selection uh, of the number two stars. And then that is the last. Two stars is the last actual promotion uh, that you that the Army actually conducts with their promotion boards and selection boards. The rest, the three stars and four stars, are appointments and nominations made by the Senate and the president. So then you have to be nominated for three and four stars, and they get passed uh, by congressional leaders and our president. So that's that, – no, uh, So uh, one star uh, – there's one star commands out there. Mine was at Coscom. It was about – uh, twenty six thousand. Uh, a two star, and it doesn't necessarily size is not always the determining factor. Sometimes it's complexity, and and whether you're working in a joint arena with Air Force and the Navy and the Marines and Coast Guard. Uh, and then three star. I think I was uh, spent my time in the Pentagon as one of the, the principal logistics officer for the Chief of Staff. Uh, I was there for three years, and uh, what. Then I was nominated in 2008 for four stars. Um, and for four stars, there's normally uh, uh, 12 or so in the Army, t- depending on the joint and the wars kind of scenario, mm. 12, or 15. So it's a very small, select group. And uh, uh, But I will tell you that, with uh, as daunting and as uh, uh, humbling as a, the Army material Command sounds with you know almost sixty thousand sixty seventy thousand seventy thousand people and sixty billion dollars, you know you look you go oh my gosh that's uh, you know daunting. But the Army prepared me well through assignments, through coaching, and through schooling and professional development. So I, it, it sounds scary, but I felt very prepared.
1: Right. Well, and and if any place is going to train you to be a leader, I feel like it would be you know the armed forces. So let's talk about it. You make it to that pinnacle. It's great. You have 70,000 people below you. What exactly was, what What does that mean? Because, you know, you could have a uh, CEO of a company, a COO, a CTO, and they're all kind of chief executives. So maybe they're these, th- maybe they're considered kind of generals of their organization. I'm, I'm trying to make an analogy here sure. for us, for us laymen, but uh, very different jobs. So what was yours and how might that differ from if there is somebody equal in status if that even exists?
3: No, no it does matter of fact um, when I went down to Coca-Cola company uh, with Mutar Kent, uh, I did a speaking engagement with him and we were kind of comparing our companies and, and they're very similar in size, in global in, in mission because he's uh, located in countries around the world. Their revenues were generally about the same. Uh, the size was generally the same, and they did distribution, which is what Army Material Command uh, we used to say: if, if a soldier eats it, flies it, wears it, drives it, shoots it, you know, Army Material Command, we provide it. We're the sustainers for the Army. That was the role of our command. The difference between, as I told Muktar Kenna, that between the two is they're not getting shot at, while <laughs> they're in their products, you know, normally. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so you were in charge of getting everything needed to all of the folks in the army.
3: That, that's correct. Include And when you think about Afghanistan, which is a landlocked country, uh, the size of Texas with less than 2% of its road network paved. So we're talking very primitive. And now you're talking about supplying uh, forces over there in this landlocked country uh, by ship, uh, you know, carefully, you uh, providing the supplies, keeping the days of supplies low. And some places on these mountaintops uh, in Afghanistan, 20,000 foot mountains down to, you know, low levels, it, it's hard even to even describe this country. So we're using mules, we're using air delivery, airdrop parachutes to get supplies to folks all over this country so in order to enable them to do their job.
1: Wow. And now I w- I'm thinking, I, I would imagine, and again, I don't have a lot of experience or knowledge here, but... That job became so much more complicated and difficult with this specific war due to things like IEDs and the way that the war was being fought than perhaps ever before. Is that a fair assessment?
3: Uh, You're absolutely right. You know, in the old days, even Desert Storm, we are very linear battlefield where, you know, the combat arms, uh, infantry armor uh, were up front in the front lines, if you will and then further back combat support, and then folks like myself in the rear area, which was kind of considered pretty safe, although, of course, they could be subject to attacks. But today, no one is safe. You know, there is no safe spot on the battlefield. It's asymmetrical, is how we describe today's fight, and the enemy is in and around, and they are everywhere. And, And the Army took this very seriously because in the old days, The funding went to training combat arms on, you know, shooting weapons, experts, snipers, uh, gunnery tables. And folks like myself, we'd qualify, you know, once or twice a year. And that would, you know, kind of more of a, I say, box check, if you will, to every soldier's a rifleman first meaning you have got to be able to defend yourself in today's environment. And we're expending the time, the training, the energy and resources to ensure that everyone on that battlefield, regardless of your branch, is trained to do just that so that we take them over and we we'll bring them home alive.
1: Right. Wow. And what, what was the uh, greatest challenge to the job of supplying the Army with all of their necessary tools all throughout the globe?
3: you know it i everyone says challenge i thought it was it was so much fun because it was a challenge and i see challenges as opportunities and it wasn't me it was this huge team of great logisticians uh from all walks of life from all organizations pulling together in the same direction and it's amazing how uh combat and war can unite folks you know to do their best and i remember one of the probably most challenging, but also, again, exciting, was that we had to conduct the largest deployment and redeployment of forces since World War II when we were coming in and out of Iraq in a 90-day period. So eight of ten divisions uh, were moving in and out of Iraq at the same time through one port. So it's kind of a choreographed, synchronized ballet, you know. Ship comes in, offloads, reloads, and you keep them going, and you have to do... Like you would do in the corporate world, a kind of a perk chart, you know, know where the choke points are and, and figure out what what's gonna keep you from being successful or meeting that timeline. And the the funny things were things like wash racks, because you had to have these things absolutely spotless, clean to get through customs to come home. Mm-hmm. And you had to get through customs and so and the number of births that you had, so we drank a lot of teas with the Kuwaitis to be able to get more births. And, you know, it was like... Wait, I'm sorry. What was that? Uh, What was uh, the thing about the tea? uh, You know, when when you're negotiating with uh, Kuwaitis, and they drink a lot of tea over there. That's what you would call it, drink a lot of tea. That's your social thing, you know. And that was to get births? (laughs) Well, yeah, we were, you know, with the the sheiks that ran the ports, you'd, you'd say, hey, we only got three births. We really need five to bring the ships in. And so... Uh, Ah. I I say that lightly, but, you know, you go and talk to them about what do we need to do to get these extra berths so we have enough spaces and berths for the ships to be able to come in, offload, reload, and and get out and meet this timeline. Interesting. So so you would do a lot of negotiations like that. They're very supportive and and very friendly. And I I tell people, you know, if, if we hadn't you didn't read a thing about it because it works so well due to these great folks all throughout the whole chains of supply chain making it work because you certainly would have read about it if we didn't make it work.
1: Sure. Well, you know, you sound like such a rational, easygoing, but, but at the same time, determined person. When would you recommend to, say, leaders in any walk of life, how do you manage your emotions? So- There's I mean, because in yours, I feel like everything is heightened and expanded. So, you know, anger could be rage or fear could be life and death. I I mean, how do you manage those, especially when you have so many people below you relying on you?
3: I think there's um, part of the whole resilience of people. And for me, it's emotional, physical, spiritual and physical. And and all four of those kind of like a Venn diagram are important parts of my life. And I come from a very devout Catholic family. My mom was absolutely the most devout Catholic (laughs) I ever knew. And she was so positive, so optimistic. Glass was always half full, never going to rain on our parade. You know, I never heard the word glass ceiling around her. Uh, Twelve years of catechism, Catholic school. So, I, you know, I grew up in a values-based family. And and I think that also played a very important role in my life and, and in my leadership development over time. Uh, coming from values-based, I think the military is a values-based organization, though I didn't really realize it until I became part of it. And, and so I think, you know, by right, staying fit uh, and keeping your emotional and, and balance and, and your spiritual beliefs, I you know, I pray a lot and I don't worry about things I can't control.
2: Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: But also I, I tell people, you know, we, we are human beings. You started this conversation out. We're just human beings and one of the chapters in my book is uh, titled "Leaders Aren't Invincible." Uh, Don't try to be. Uh, and because we are human beings, there's there can be circumstances, and it happens happened to me, and where a lot of negative things happen all at once. You know, in my case, I was I had an unhappy marriage. We were going to Germany. I didn't like where we lived. I didn't like my job. And, you know, and I start feeling sick and I'm thinking, what's going wrong? I go to the doc and he says, uh, are you under any stress? So I said, are you kidding me? I'm like the, I'm like the Walmart reader for this community. <laughs> that's, that's my job, you know. And then it's it kind of hit me, you know, that, you know, my marriage was falling apart. and come coming a happy family. I didn't like my job. I didn't like where I lived. And I hadn't talked to anyone about it. I hadn't told my parents. I just knew they think I was a failure. And and the doc told me I was getting a bleeding ulcer and I better take care of myself. And wow <laughs> yeah. You know, I went home, talked to my mom and dad, flew home from Germany and told them about it. and they were they were so supportive, it was like the world was lifted off my shoulders and you know, they just said, Hey, you do what you gotta do, you do the right thing and it'll all work out and then I went back, got an interview, got a great job, got to command a rigor detachment and moved me and my dog to a new house and and done what he was back. But I have seen stuff happen to individuals because we think we are invisible, invincible. Uh Uh And in the military, you want these young men and women to think you can do anything. Take that hill, jump out of the airplane, you know, do this, do that. And we want them to believe that. But we are still humans. And I've seen even my friends, general officers in theater who... You know they didn't they're rangers, they're infantry, they tried to do it all themselves, and they didn't get sleep and they didn't get rest and they end up with breakdowns, you know instead of trying to balance and and so you gotta we as leaders, I think we have to be on the lookout for when you see someone that's not acting you know the way they're chipper or something down, and then you find out that they have kind of this whole conglomerate of junk happening in them too, and sure, sure. you know I think by talking about it. And helping them work themselves through it is an important part.
1: Well, I really appreciate that, and I'm glad we we touched on that because you know so many people, and I know myself included. I mean, listeners know kind of my story, and and there was some a lot of times of anxiety, and am I on the right path, and work wasn't going the same the right way, and it manifests physically. And then the more I talk about it, the more I realize it happens to everyone. So, what did you do in that time of stress? Or what do you recommend to others to kind of to reset? Because what I'm realizing and I go around, I talk to companies as well um, through I I consult for Franklin Covey and, you know, everyone's busy. That's the thing, like really, really busy. And so what what do you do? Take, you know, I'm sure the scenario you were in where so busy people relying on you, where it really doesn't seem like the right thing to do is step back. So how do you, how did you handle it? How should others?
3: Yeah, I you know, first I, I didn't even know it was happening to me, you know, because I, I thought like many leaders do, that I'm I a senior parachutist, I could handle anything, I could take anything, you know. I just I believed that. And but what I realized having experienced that that I, I really couldn't handle it at all. And your body knows whether your hair falls out or people get rash. You know all the symptoms right. or ulcers or, or worse. You, you think about, you know, terrible thoughts. And so, uh, you know, what I learned from that, and I, I really did not realize it as I was going through it because I just assumed that I was invincible. I could handle it. And, you know, I, didn't, I could just fake my way through that. Everything was great, you know. And it wasn't until the, I went to the doc, and I really realized that. Oh my gosh, you know, I, I don't have that. You know, a lot of times you can handle one bad, and you have your your dog or your house or your job. You know, something's rewarding in your life. But when when it's all not going your way, that's a your, your body knows, and uh, it's gonna do something, rebel or revolt <laughs> in some way, and so. I guess the what what I learned and I, I, I really didn't realize it until Doc said, you got a bleeding ulcer. me a bleeding ulcer you kidding uh, you know I'm fit I run marathons you know how did that happen? And it was just trying to absorb all this stuff and keep it inside uh, that I realized, okay uh, I have to deal, I have to deal with my marriage and and I did and I would deal with my family and I, and I did. And then I went and interviewed for a new job because I didn't really enjoy the one I was doing. I got a good job and I got to move. So I I just started, you know, the things that were making me unhappy and were causing this distress within my body are the things I tried to address. And then I learned from that that, you know, we are only human and that but we should be on the lookout uh, with our subordinates, because if it can happen to me, it can happen to you, it could happen to anybody.
2: Right, right, But
3: we don't usually look for those kind of things, and I can't tell you how many times now in my career when I saw someone who's normally jovial or chipper, and they're kind of, you know, I'm around, and you go, hey, what's, what's going on? And, you know, okay, I just found out I was diagnosed with this kind of cancer. So, you know, sure, it, sure. just be on the lookout and be sensitive that you're human, and when you see changes, just see how people are doing and mean it. Like you said.
1: Yeah. And I love your pragmatic approach. It's almost like the, that's the hill we got to take, go take it. It was okay. Wait, first I had to figure out there was something going on and then evaluate what is it. And then you set up a plan to almost tackle each thing. And and I want to highlight that because in my experience, and again, this isn't necessarily a podcast about me, but it's, it's hosted by me. So I get to say this, but you know, um, you have to first step back and then identify it. And it's much easier to hide it and cover it up and try to move through it and say, I can do this. But that I feel is what gets to the point where it's almost irreversible. Whether it be physical, mental, you know, emotional, whatever, uh it it does not go away unless dealt with. And in your case, you said, It's the marriage, it's where I live, it's my job. Okay, I'm gonna deal with one, two, three. And then see, see, come out the other end a better person.
3: Absolutely, it, and it was all hard, you know. And the, the, I think the marriage thing was probably the hardest part. I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I'm gonna be one of those statistics. Mm-hmm. But it just wasn't. Uh, I got married young. It just wasn't. You know, my husband didn't want to have family, and I thought, God, I wasn't want to have a family. You know, yes. Yeah. All those things, and then so you just had to get on with with the life part of it, and and. But now I, the other the other myth I always tell people is and about having it all <laughs> is that don't let society define what having it all means. You know, uh-huh. T- today they say you know for us is happily married, good successful career for the wife and the husband and two and a half kids. One's a cheerleader, one's a captain of the football team, <laughs> blah blah. And but uh, I feel like I've had it all and. uh I don't have my own kids. I have two wonderful kids from my husband's first marriage and four beautiful grandkids. And so, no, don't let society define it. You know, know what having it all means to you. (laughs)
1: Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Anne, again, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations. And thank you for your service. The book is A Higher Standard, Leadership Strategies from America's First Female Four-Star General. Um, We will link to that directly at Smart People Podcast, and also you can find it on Amazon. Where else can people find you, learn about you, read about you, perhaps bring you into their company or organization to speak, things like that?
2: uh,
3: I have a website, www.annedunwoody.com, and the book says a lot. And I don't know what else. uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. (laughs) At Ann
1: Dunwoody. So that's A-N-N d-u-n woody
3: okie-dokie thanks i really enjoyed it absolutely yeah. thank I'll you so much it one day
1: absolutely me too all right all right bye-bye
2: welcome back i hope you enjoyed that episode with general ann dunwoody her book a higher standard leadership strategies from america's first female four-star general can be found on amazon or at your local bookstore If you do decide to purchase through Amazon, please don't forget to use the smartpeoplepodcast.com Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you'd like to reach out to the show, please shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you're a first-time listener or just looking for a free and easy way to support the show, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating, review, and comment over there. It really does help out the show. Please stay tuned to All Things Smart People Podcast by heading over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up, and we will see you all next week.